Hello, and welcome to the MIC Plus One podcast, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of TaskTop, and best-selling author of Project to Product, how to survive and thrive in the age of digital disruption with the Flow Framework. I'm delighted to have Carmen Diardo join me on this episode. Carmen and I met while he worked at Nationwide Insurance, where he was responsible for driving continuous delivery utilizing DevOps, Lean, and Agile practices. For that effort, Carmen and team were recognized as the most successful DevOps transformation of 2016 by DevOps.com. Carmen also co-authored the book, A Leader's Guide to Digital Transformation, which was recognized as one of the top five DevOps books of 2020 by the DevOps Dozen Community Awards. I have the privilege of working even more closely with Carmen now in his role as Principal Flow Advisor and VSM Practice Lead at TaskTop. Every time that we chat, Carmen shares new lessons on Flow with me, new flow dysfunctions, new customer stories. So I'm just thrilled that he will share them with us today on the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone. I am delighted to welcome Carmen Diardo to the podcast. Carmen and I go way back. He's been such a close colleague and companion on this on this amazing journey as uh, we've worked out some of the core concepts of project to product. I actually met Carmen at the very first DevOps Enterprise Summit. Carmen, is that correct? What what year was that? Two thousand fourteen, Mick. Yeah, and you claim that you introduced me to Gene. Is that also correct? Well, it's my it's my story, and I'm sticking to it. But. <laughs> I think I think it may well be true, uh, and I remember actually I'll never forget in, in that very first introductory meeting, uh, Gene immediately pointed out, "Oh, by the way, that's Brent. That's Brent from the Phoenix Project. You have to meet him." Uh, <laughs> we'll leave uh, we'll leave uh, guessing who Brent was to to the listener, but Carmen, you know, tell me a little bit about your first experience with DevOps because what what happened with me is I I actually got had had a chance to see you present right and. I was amazed by the fact that some of these concepts I knew were so important to technology companies, to all the work I was doing with open source, to all the work we were starting to do to help larger organizations become software innovators, you were applying. And the way that you talked about it, and the reason I was so excited to meet you after your presentation, was because I realized that the kind of systems thinking that you were putting in place was something I I was not hearing elsewhere. I was not hearing that same kind of technology and leadership combined to really help at, at that time in your career nationwide insurance get pointed in the right direction. So just give us a bit of you know your story, your context, how you end up at nationwide. I think you know I really do want you to relate this obviously back to some experiences that you had with with Bell Labs because I think that's that's what I've learned so much from. So what was on your mind in 2014? So I think what was on my mind in 2014 was I mean, as you noted, I had the opportunity to start my career at Bell Labs, where, which was very steeped in the culture of Deming and Schuhart and you know, lean concepts, and, and you know, I don't think Flow was a thing, at least not when I was at Bell Labs. But you know, I kind of had that upbringing, and then I was also fortunate at Nationwide to get into the middle of agile lean DevOps journeys. And my manager at the time, AVP, was Tom Pater, who has a deep background in lean. He wrote the uh, Lean IT Field Guide with Mike Orson. And so, you know, we were look already starting to look at things from a perspective of, it started more than integrated tool chain. And I had the opportunity to work with like Rosalind Ratcliffe because we were uh, 
you know, IBM was partners with us. Lee Reed, who's now at uh, working with us, was there. And so my first foray was really about we needed to be able to integrate our tool chain and I used to say model our artifacts across the tool chain, which essentially was our development value stream. I think as we started to refine those ideas, you know, they aligned with DevOps in the sense that DevOps was focused on the right-hand side of that value stream. You know, I call it code to cloud. But there wasn't any attention at that point and still probably not as much as is needed on the left-hand side. And I, you know, our experience at Nationwide was roughly half our time and money was spent before a card ever got in the backlog of an agile team. So even if we were perfect from code to cloud, you know, that we're, there's 50% of cost and time that we're leaving on the table. And I think as we took a step back, you know, what we realized is we had optimized the middle of the value stream, which was okay because you have to start somewhere. So, you know, I think we see that in our conversations even today where organizations have started with some kind of concept around agile scrum and they're focused more on that middle portion of the value stream but i think our the feeling i had was and we had to focus on the entire value stream so those were the kind of things that were in our head is is how devops could help us do that but also you know how we could get more of a handle on where things are flowing and more importantly, where they aren't. Yeah. And Carmen, I think that for me, that moment, that part of your talk and then our discussion was, was really groundbreaking for me, right? It tied together so many of these things that I was concerned with that I was seeing in these organizations, which in the end boiled down to what you distilled as local optimization of the value stream. So I think the, you, know, you you saw it back then. You actually saw it with some empirical data, and since this time, you've actually been able, to, I think, to to apply these concepts. I, obviously, this was a a key inspiration to me, and something I, I definitely covered at length in Project to Product. But what's been so interesting to me, and I think you know, maybe we can talk about this a bit more when we're talking about your your more recent learnings, is that this is still happening everywhere. So I'm, I, it is fascinating to me how much across organizations that we work with, large transformations out there today, this no, this low, there's just this gravity that pulls people into local optimization of the value stream. And I think, you know, you said this, no, no, one, no one starts out with that as the goal, right? No one wants to make the goal local op- optimization of the value stream. So uh, how, you know, how did Nationwide get there? Maybe I, I imagine there's some lessons that we can take from what you experienced and apply them to what we're seeing in, in other organizations today. Yeah, I think that's a great question, Mick. And I, and I think you know one of the things that I used to talk about, and we used to talk about as as a as a team who was trying to do this work, was getting people to switch from vertical thinking to horizontal thinking. You know, I think we've seen in our careers, right? Sometimes there's a shift between kind of a general practitioner kind of view that people have a broader set of skills and then a very specialized view about what folks are focusing on and and I so I think over time you know where we were at nationwide and I didn't see this at Bell Labs right we had some core 
concepts at Bell Labs about bringing a team together. I don't think we used the word cross-skilled at the time, but we had the roles necessary to deliver a product on a team, and we brought the work to the team. And the first thing I saw was, you know, we had this project concept of taking people from different systems and then and then getting them aligned on a project. So, so you know, typically what happens on those kind of journeys is organizations realize that there's some cost effectiveness to having some common capabilities, common practices, quality management, service management, requirements management, project management, and focusing then, and this is where the local optimization comes in, having OKRs and, and the like that focus on maximizing that. I talk about, you know, I have a pizza box story I talk about sometimes during conferences about, you know, if you have a goal of creating, if you have a team of pizza box makers, you're going you're gonna to hire pizza box makers and you're going to fill up rooms with pizza boxes. But that doesn't sell pizza. In fact, that's contrary to the goal because you're spending time and, re- and resources on something that isn't really aligned with what the company's focused on. So it becomes very easy, especially in a large company, to become focused in this functional area, this silo, and you know, you're working to get better. But again, all, all of that is leading to local optimization. Nobody necessarily can get above that, get outside of that system and say, okay, how are things working overall and do that kind of systems thinking? That's something I took for granted at Bell Labs. That's something I rarely see it's not that people aren't capable of doing it. It's just that's not the way organizations typically think when they're thinking about how to do and deliver products or projects today. So, Carmen, hang on a second, because we've got... So, first, I think you should define what you think of as local optimization of the value stream and, and what it means. I think that'd be really useful. And I think the organizations, you know, as I've heard you say repeatedly, they, they don't start out with a goal of local optimization. They don't start out with a goal of, of making more pizza boxes, right? The, the starting point usually is delivering more value, more innovation, more pizzas, and the like. So what is local optimization of the value stream? And how, again, how, you know, you, you mentioned silos, uh, you mentioned these, you know, some of these, I think, the work patterns, um, I actually do re- I really think that this was obviously one of the key topics as well in Project to Product that I learned a ton about from you, about the problems of bringing, uh, basically the, br- bringing work to people versus bringing people to work, right? It was, I, I had never seen it at that scale until you and I started analyzing what was happening and the failures that, that we can see from bringing people to work. But let's pause on that one for a moment and let's just Get, I'd l- love your perspective on what is local optimization of value stream. And then and again, even with the best of intents of making the tastiest pizzas, how is it <laughs> that, that so quickly organizations snap back into that? And into that, as I think you put it, that you know, the, not the horizontal thinking, not the customer-centric thinking, not the focus, flow, and joy that Gene's got us thinking about, but back into the silos. Sure, I sure Mick. So I think you know. Let's take an advantage. Let's take a, an example that I actually see a lot of when I'm coaching today. And let's let's talk about the front end of the process because I don't think that gets talked about enough. So let's talk about the work intake and let's talk about requirements management, if you will. If if I have a team and I actually talk to a customer just 
this week who actually has teams focused on this left-hand side of the value stream. If I have a team and my job is to groom and design stories and get them ready for development to take in, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But if I start to then focus on you know, speed of doing that's important. But if I start to focus on, well, how many of these I can do and, you know, more is better. And before you know it, and we see this in the data, we see this with the, the WIP, the work in progress data and the neglected WIP data, you have four, five, six, seven months of work that's sitting there on the left-hand side of your value stream that has not yet entered into the design, develop, test phase of your product lifecycle. So you may feel that you're being very successful because you know, you're being very productive on this left-hand side of the value stream. But when you take a look across your value stream, what do you see? You see that, well, first of all, it may take, you know, based on your delivery capability, it may take months, if not a year to actually deliver any of the, the work that you're defining. So how much of it's even going to be relevant? How much of it's going to be stale? Market conditions, as we know, are changing very rapidly. Working with one customer, their real bottleneck, what they found was around QA capability. And they actually had this issue. So on the left-hand side of their value stream, they had this tremendous overproduction, which is a form of waste, of intake work, epic stories, and on the right-hand side or the mid-right-hand side, they had a buildup of work that wasn't able to get through their QA, release QA, release certification part of their process. So if you're standing above it and you're looking at this, you know the first thing you would say is, well, I have too much focus on the left-hand side, I need to switch some of that focus to the right-hand side. That sounds simple, but who has that view? You know, there's a scene in the Mothman prophecies where Richard Gere is trying to figure out what's going on because all these bizarre things are happening, and he, he thinks somebody has premonitions, and he's talking to his professor, and they're looking at, I think it's the Sears Tower in Chicago, and, and the professor says, if, some, if there's a window washer in the Sears Tower and there's a car wreck across town... They'll know about it before anybody else is. That doesn't make them a god. They just have a better perspective. Where is it in organizations where we have these perspectives to get above the fray and say, oh, yes, we have an overproduction of work here. We continue to invest here when really we need to invest somewhere else, which is where the work is getting clogged up. It sounds like a simple concept. But in large organizations with dependencies and handoffs, it's a very difficult for people to get that perspective and be able to say, okay, pull the end on chain. You know, we got an issue here. We need to shift where our focus is, which will then actually improve what we're delivering for our customer. Yeah. And Carmen, I think. That's in the end the challenge. I think it sounds both you and I spent had just countless conversations on is is why is it so hard to get that perspective? I think you know, to both of us there was something innate about it. For you, it was from from having seen an organization that's effectively managed with that perspective at Bell Labs, right? For me, it was 
something similar with Xerox Spark and then with open source and then and then with the way startups, uh, software startups are managed. But what we've seen is it is it is actually fundamental. And it was so interesting to me about our earlier discussions. It is fundamentally harder in very large organizations with thousands or tens of thousands of IT staff and with just the increasing amount of specialization that's happening on top of you know all the legacy, all the new initiatives and everything else. So and I think, you know, like you, I, I think there's some inspiration that I draw here from Deming is that you, know, you, you can't change the system from within the system, right? You and I both know that, but I think our frustrations came from the fact that all the changes that we were seeing were being attempted from within the system and you know, from within the Agile tool, from within what was happening on the, on the operations and service management side, from within what was happening on the project management side. And you know, those changes aren't working. So I do remember that one of my uh, fondest memories of our collaboration was when I was trying so hard, I was actually preparing for a meeting with you and some of the nationwide CIOs. And on the flight over from Vancouver to Columbus, I, I just said, it, it was just thinking to myself, it cannot be this difficult. And so I, I grabbed a piece of paper, I grabbed my pen, the last flight from Toronto to Columbus, there was no Wi-Fi. And, and I sketched the first the, the flow framework. I, I kind of you know scribbled up this diagram, which is uh, actually quite similar to what the flow framework looks like today. And I, I remember being very excited to show it to you. So this was January 2018, and I think it's again our. I was trying to capture, and I, I wasn't showing it to anyone else at that point. By the way, you were the first person to see it. I think, as you know, but I was just trying to capture ways that we could shift this perspective, right? Ways that we could make it easier. Uh, to look at the system, to look at the flow, to look at the entire value stream because of the fact that, again, everyone's always just snapping back into their silos. So tell me if you could just give us that. And again, how is it, share with us how it is that you know you help me with these concepts. And again, how is it that you basically got there yourself, uh, were so helpful to me, and now are so helpful to so many other technology leaders to really look and measure from outside the system. Well, I, I think Mick, and you're very kind. I mean, <laughs> you know, I certainly have learned. I think far more from you, but I think it actually, you know, as we got later in this journey, what I actually remember is, and I think you know, what later became, I think, the Artifact Network is, you know, we were using Hub at the time, and we were looking at identifying and integrating artifacts. In order to improve, you know, our effect and our efficiency, but also our visibility of, of work. So, you know, we we all know that people want to work in their tool of choice. I mean, you've made a career out of this, and bringing that work to them rather than have them chase it is, is a key component of of their productivity and happiness. And I remember thinking that really, if you and I at that point, I was the product owner of the tool chain. So, you know, we started at the left-hand side. We had a PPM tool. We had a bunch of, you know, requirements management, quality management. We had service management tools. We had security management that was going on. So we had a very full, complete full tool chain. And what I remember thinking was the, the gem, the information they actually want to mine is in the artifacts of the way that we do work. However, we don't have a way to see that. So we would do a lot of value stream mapping. And value stream mapping can be a very effective activity when done at the appropriate time and used in the appropriate way. But 
it wasn't something that actually gave us in real time an automated way to see how our work was flowing. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, if you start at the left-hand side of our value stream with we had something called a work request, and I think we are clarity at the time, and it turned into, you know, a feature and a story and then eventually went through the rest of the process to release, the information was there. We just didn't have a way to get at it. So I remember I would say to people, we need to model the artifacts across the value stream. And they would look at me like I had three heads, which is okay. I've had that experience before. But, but it was like, how can we get at that information? Because if we can, then it, we can make it very clear you know, making that visible and then, and then being able to measure and see just like on a highway, where's things piling up? Because, you know, at the time my sense is we were guessing, we weren't really doing our executives justice. I used to compare it to coaching a basketball game that you don't get to watch and you get a, you just get some stats and then you try to figure out what, what do I have to do to improve? We weren't giving them the visibility they actually needed. And so they had to guess at the DevOps practice. Well, just do this DevOps practice, things will get better. Well, how do you know? I mean, that's like sending 50 people to get to the doctor and they come back with the same prescription. It's not a mechanical application of DevOps practices. It's applying the DevOps practice or, or any improvement based on where it is that's going to make a difference and then being able to measure that and demonstrate it. So. It was kind of at that point where those things were in my mind when you showed me your diagram. And I think things just like locked into, that's just one of the moments I always remember. It's like everything locked into place. It's like, Mick, you have, you have the solution. It's right here. If we can apply this, you know, we, this can be a tremendous opportunity for not only us, but other organizations to be able to unlock the key of just where are things flowing and as tom would always ask me carmen why do we why we want to know where things are flowing well it's because we want to know where they're not i mean that's the memory i kind of have of that whole exchange yeah yeah exactly i think and, and it was I, I think our paths to it were pretty similar right because for me it was the same thing it was it was understanding and actually getting to work with i think and that's something that we share in common getting to work directly with that artifact network and having seen in terms of you know, our own experiences, where these waste states are, where all the waste is happening, where things are, where things are getting bottlenecked. So it really was, I think, both of our experiences and extrapolation of of under of seeing the flows and seeing the the dysfunctions of the flows. And Carmen, that brings me to my next question. Over the past you know couple of years, you've been helping some large organizations do really large deployments of the flow framework measure and managing the value streams, uh, basically helping them implement the thing that you've, you've had me repeating uh, since I, ever since I heard you say that either you manage your value streams or, or they're managing you. So I would just love for you to give us a summary of the, some of the key lessons that you've learned, and especially the ones that you've learned most recently. I think the, the fascinating thing is a lot of what we learned back then, you know, back in uh, uh, several years ago, still applies. And I think a lot of organizations are still struggling and again, snapping back into these local optimizations. In terms of our conversations more recently of 
I've noticed that you've actually got a new set of tools and approaches and, and ways of helping them break through that. Uh, even though a lot of our, these organizations, a lot of our listeners are still in relatively early stages of that journey. So can you just give us some of the highlights of some of the, the biggest surprises, the biggest learnings that you've had in terms of the flow advisory that you've been doing over the past couple of years? Sure, Mick. I, I think it starts, right, as, as Dominica, you know, Dominica de Grandis talks about is, is the visibility of work. Because if you can't if you can't visualize it, you also can't manage it. So I think the learnings that we had, that I had very early on and still come out is that, and some of this I think also is comes from the project culture, where in the project culture, features and maybe defects within the scope of those features are what rule. Nobody wants to pay for upgrading the struts library because there may be a potential security risk. No one necessarily wants to make the next delivery better. They're focused on their own delivery. That's how they're incented. And so risks and debt typically are not things that were made visible or were artifacts that were prioritized and worked. And what struck me, especially on the risk side, was you know these organizations were probably spending millions of dollars on tools in order to do dynamic scanning, static scanning, you know, mitigation, maybe other compliance items that they have to deal with. And yet, when you ask them, what is the journey of a risk, right? Where does it start? You know, you would get these very long discussions and diatribes of, well, yeah, we run a scan and the security manager runs a report and then they have a meeting and then maybe there's another meeting. And then they beg somebody to prioritize this. And so what struck me was, and I'm sure by the time this got to the CEO or the CIO or CTO or whatever, if they asked questions about risk, they were probably getting the kind of checkbox answers that you talk about, Mick, when you say, you know, activities versus outcomes. Well, do we have a security tool? Check. Do we, are people trained on it? Check. Do we run security scans? Check. That's great. What's your outcomes? Are you actually acting on those? How long does it take from the time you notice something in a scan that could be a, a critical vulnerability until it gets fixed? None of those things seem to be coming to the forefront. I mean, I had a discussion recently with someone who said they had an OKR by the end of the fiscal year to address all their risk issues. And so we're looking at their flow metrics and their flow distribution and, and flow velocity. And here they have this big mountain spike in the last few weeks of the fiscal year where all the risks, all these risk issues were addressed. And the person said to me, yeah, we made our OKR, but for months and months, we were just lucky because we had vulnerabilities sitting there. So again, at the highest level, oh, it looks fine. We met our OKRs. Right. However, you know, they had a lot of vulnerability that, that wasn't really being addressed effectively. I think the other lesson I've learned, and this actually happened when I was sitting there looking one day at the set of flow metrics, and I said, there's something wrong here. Because, you know, and I'm not going to get into the depths of things like Little's Law, but but this what struck me is this system must not be stable because the flow load, the flow time, and, and the flow velocity were not in sync in terms of you know what Little's Law would tell us they should be for a stable system. The flow load was much higher 
than it would be if the system was stable. And you know, I don't have access to the actual source tools that are generating the metrics per se. So I can't look at somebody's quality center and look at their defects and actually say, you know, when was this created? Is this being worked? You know, when's the last time it was updated? But I made a statement during a session that I thought maybe three quarters of their defects were being neglected or, you know, they were not moving towards completion with the same pace as other things that were reflected in their metrics. And one of the people on the call got a little indignant, like, well, how could you know that? And, and so unbeknownst to me during the call, they went off, actually dug into the source data and near the end of the call, come up and say, yeah, you're right. We have all these old defects. They're sitting there. They say they're in progress, but they're not, they're not really being worked. And, and I think as we started, as I started to look more into this, what we found is almost every interaction I have has a high percentage of neglected work in progress. So it appears in the source tools that this is being worked on, which is doubly dangerous in the world that we live in now because people are relying more on you know, status information that they can pull themselves around a defect, a feature, whatever they're interested in. And so if these states aren't accurate, right, that's information that's sending the wrong message and the wrong expectations. And yet time after time, you know, even though these customers, again, had agile practices, Scrum, they were, maybe they were using SAFE, supposedly all these have, you know, these all have at their heart pull models, yet you could see all this work was flowing downstream, they were getting overwhelmed, and then they had a large percentage of work that was being neglected. And, you know, that was, that's been a big finding with organizations to have them now go back and look, just look at why it is that they got in this situation. What's going on in their work intake process? What's happening with context switching? Why is it that they end up in these situations where they have all of this flow load where a high percentage of it is is being neglected and their system in fact is not stable i mean their input their outputs their their ability to sustain what they're doing is not stable yeah kermin i think this is to me has been one of the biggest surprises as in terms of what i've seen myself in deployments of the of the flow framework and then also what i've learned from you and from the other flow advisors is i think i had a sense that the work in progress the cues and what we measure in the flow framework as, as flow load was bad. It is very surprising just how bad it is and then how pervasive it is. I felt like it shouldn't be this surprising, right? There's some understanding that when you completely overload people, overload teams, you get less out, right? So I do think this this does have to relate back to what you said, that this is this is not visible. It's not visible to the right people. It's not visible in the right ways. And if it were, I think we're all assuming that people there'd be something done about it. And every time we have made it visible, which sounds like you actually managed to to get through that in a single meeting, there was an acceptance of this, an acceptance of the fact that when you get flow load that high, you get the value you're delivering just, just goes to a trickle. Uh, it's no longer a value stream. It's, it's so constrained uh, and so overloaded. So I, I think I, it would be, and I guess the challenge is 
that we do have, whether it's leadership, whether it's project management, I think, and let me know what you think of this, but what I've realized recently, and you bring up OKRs, which is a really timely thing to do, what I've realized is that at the management and leadership level, there's usually no sense of what a value stream's capacity is. At that team of teams level, what capacity is. And as you said, the, the agile frameworks, they've got their pull models, which is meant to help that. Uh, whip limits are meant to help that. But fundamentally, when planning is being done to bring that next great mobile application or that great next great offering to market, it's being done with no sense of capacity. And then the result is very quickly, whether it's for older initiatives or newer initiatives, is the queues pile up, the work in progress piles up, and productivity grinds to a halt. So I actually do think that this is a safe enough space for you, Carmen, to tell us what Little's Law is, why it's important, and and why it actually... And of course, you know, we're finding ways to, to simplify this, make it more visible, make it more, more tangible feeling, but... Just can you just tell us why are queues so bad and why are they? Why do you think that they're just constantly ignored? Yeah, so that's a that's a great setup there, Mick. So you know, Lil's Law. I mean, I'll general I'll, I'll generalize this, and people who don't know can certainly do more research. But to, you know, is again in a stable system, and those are kind of my words. But if you look at the assumptions, what they're defining as a stable system, if you know what the input rate is, which in a stable system should be the same as the output rate, and you know how long things stay in the system. So let's think about a bank. If I stand outside a bank and I see people coming out and I count how many they come out in a day and I see how long, and I ask them how long they were in there, I could come up with an estimate of at at any point of the day, if I walked in the bank, how many people I should expect. So let's say I do that and I say, okay, based on what I've, I do this for a few days, and you know the numbers are relatively consistent. The fourth day, I say, okay, I'm going to go in this bank in the middle of the day, and I should find, let's just say, ten people. And then I walk in, and there's fifty-five. <laughs> there's something wrong, right? Those fifty-five people are not being all served. Maybe, you know, maybe they're. There's, they're being neglected, if you will, in some way. And so, and so when you opened up the window to the system, and, and you know, a lot of times our windows across the value streams are just little slices. Like we get a window into the Agile board. Oh, everything's good on the Agile board. Well, where's this work coming from? Well, I don't know. That's, that's coming from portfolio. Right. So then you go over to that the portfolio team. Well, they have another board. Or then it's going to release. So so again, it's these local views and these local windows, and maybe things maybe look okay there, although they really don't, but they seemingly look okay. And and I think one of the reasons people get into this, and and, and one great example was, you know, there were some teams that were focused on building a new mobile app for a new product, and they were looking at their work and they were managing their work and they were pulling their work in. So they were, they were fine. And actually they didn't have neglected work in progress in general. However, when you talk to them and said, well, what it's getting in your way, it's like, yeah, we have these states further downstream where it takes a long time. Well, what area is that? Well, that's this backend team that has to do some verification and certification process. 
So you say, well, maybe we should look at that. And this is really an internal product. So I think one of the learnings is, you know, sometimes there's this focus on the external products, the business-facing products, when most of the products a company has, and we've talked about this, is internal and platform. And they get neglected. And they don't necessarily pull the work in. If you're this internal team that keeps getting work as a result of one of the seven external-facing teams that you're supporting pulling in work, it's flowing downstream to you. So now we go and look at that team, and we put their flow under the microscope, and sure enough, they have tons of, of WIP, tons of neglected WIP, and they have these huge pile-ups you know, waiting to get through various stages of their work process. Nobody's looking to invest in that team. They're not the ones that are, that are getting all the attention. They're not the ones that are getting all the funding or priority. However, if you invest there, you're going to get a 7 to 10 to whatever fold amplification of return because that's how many teams that you are focusing on are depending on consuming something from this team. That, to me, is, is really hidden in most organizations. They don't understand or have visibility to those dependencies, the parts of the things that you talk about in the networks in the flow framework where they may not have work is being pushed onto them, being piled up, and there's no investment in trying to understand, let alone improve their flow. Yeah, exactly. And I think, Carmen, it's, it's amazing how these things basically amplify each other in, in creating even larger queues, right? Because you'll have things queuing up on that, say, that mobile team who's got even there are even bigger queues on the platform team that that needs to be supporting them and amazingly none of this is visible right and attempts to make it visible again tend to focus on like you said those local boards so tell and just take us through another one so i think you know just a couple things here right one is how do you get people thinking differently and and realizing the importance of these cues, the importance of actually, or what suggestions do you give them to start shortening these cues? Because I think the amazing thing that you and I both have seen is once this is visible, once this is accepted, how quick the wins are, right? And, and something that you know, you've always emphasized for me that I think is, is so important in terms of the improvement around this is seeing those wins and celebrating those wins and in the end, within the organization, showing that there's some, in terms of the work in progress and flow load, there's massive low-hanging fruit because the improvements, the, the benefits are so quick. And as soon as things start feeling better and flowing faster, all of a sudden, you've got people across the value stream in the business and, and ideally the customer much more happy. So can you tell us just some guidance on how you get people to take those, you know, take those first steps? And then I would really like to also hear beyond... WIP and the flow load that we're seeing, what has been one of your biggest learnings outside of that in terms of the kind of flow dysfunctions that you're seeing? Sure. I, I think you're right that you know you need those success stories. I mean, first of all, it's the people closest to the work, again, going back to Deming and the concepts of quality circles, there's people closest to the work that know how best to improve it. But you have to give them the information and the opportunity to actually and the capacity to actually run those experiments and, and say, yes, this worked, and then apply those across your organization. I mean, one situation that we, we worked with, and I, I ended up calling this the builder's dilemma, 
was was when you looked at their looked at their stories, they were being completed, and most organizations are this way, right? Their stories get completed in eight, nine, twelve days, right around two or three week iterations. When the business sees that, they say, "That's not my experience." And when you actually measure the epics and the features, which actually deliver the business value, because most of the times they're decomposed into stories and they don't really get business value until those epics or features are delivered, they were running 50, 60, 70, 80 days. So you could have a ratio of five, six, seven, ten 10 to 1 between the time to complete a story versus the time to actually deliver value, true value, to the customer. So you start to have that conversation and say, well, why is this happening? So we're talking to one team, and you know, there's some ratio of stories to features, and, and we start to look at how many things get, become in progress at any one point in time. And they're doing these PI plannings, and there are more and more things that are being brought in and started. But they aren't necessarily being completed. It's like a builder building houses, and yet... They don't get their money and there is no value until they close and someone moves in and the bank gets their money. And so you ask questions like, why did you decide to start the 49th epic instead of focusing on finish one of the previous 48? Yeah. It sounds like an easy question, but but the answer I got was kind of surprising. They said, well, we kind of base our PI planning sessions on trying to keep as many stakeholders as possible happy. And if a stakeholder feels something of theirs is getting worked on, then we start it. Well, okay, that's that's interesting. But the maybe they're happy at the beginning, but there's a price to pay for that. They're not going to get into their house any sooner. Their their foundation might get poured, but it's going to sit there longer because of the process you're going through. So they made a simple change. They just started to limit how many new things they started and focusing on improving and delivering value more quickly. And it actually improved because they were doing less context switching. They were able to, to get more things done, reduce the flow time on their epics. And yet, even though they started later on some of these other, other items, they were actually being able to, to complete them earlier because they were more effective and efficient in how they were operating. That can be counterintuitive when, when you know, you're thinking of the more things we can start in parallel, the better we're all, we'll be when it's actually the opposite of that. So I guess that's... That's my one story. I think, I think as far as other learnings, you know, what I'm finding is how much people respond more to don't really understand who their customers are or focus on satisfying or delighting who they are. And by that, what I'll say mm-hmm. is many times when, when you start to talk to an internal team or a platform team and you ask, well, who is your customer? It's kind of like crickets, like, like what or what value do you actually provide? And I'm not blaming them. It's just not the way they're they're thinking, right? They're not. If you ask them more of why they're doing certain things, it's more like because their boss is telling them to do it, rather than they're doing it to the, to give a better customer experience. You know, bosses are not customers. I understand they're stakeholders, and they can be very important stakeholders. But are we actually thinking, I'll say sometimes when we're talking about how to measure flow time, they'll say, well, if I don't do it this way, it's going to make us look bad or it'll look bad on this report. And I'll say, okay, let's flip this around. You are 
but your customer. Is that how you would measure your time? You know, if I bring my car into the shop and I drive it on the lot, maybe it only goes up on the lift and they get it done in 45 minutes. I don't care about that. My car's been there three days. My clock stopped, started when I dropped my car off, not when you put it on the lift. You have to start thinking like your customer. That sounds simple, but it, it isn't. <laughs> and I think trying to get people to look through the lens, you know, the kind of this design thinking aspect of through the lens of their customer, what is it that they're doing and how is that being reflected from their customer's perspective doesn't come naturally in some of the environments that we work with. Yeah, and Carmen, I think it's as simple as it sounds. This just the, the clarity of that advice is, is understanding your customer, making sure everyone on the value stream understands the customer and what they're delivering. It, it is this catalyst for autonomy and for flow. And the other one that you're relating is the you know that that's just stop starting, start finishing. Which, by the way, we have to do on this podcast. We have to start fin- <laughs> finishing. <laughs> but uh, but it's again as simple as it sounds. The the power of this when I've seen you apply it and help others apply it is. is is just amazing because again, the results can be so quick. Before I invite us to share any last words, I, I do encourage everyone to take a look at Carmen's book, uh, Leader's Guide to Digital Transformation, and won the DevOps Dozen Awards, which was just just great to see some of these these great thoughts in there. And Carmen, in terms of reaching out to you, reading more of what you've written because you've been covering these topics you know, in great detail and very eloquently, uh, where, where can people find you? The easiest place to find me is on LinkedIn. So it's just Carmen Diardo. You can find me. Uh, we also have a project to product group that's been formed that, you know, we have a lot of discussions along these veins around, you know, flow and, and, you know, making the journey from project to products. That's the best place to locate me. And I look forward to hearing from folks. Excellent. Thank you, Carmen. Any last words? Yeah. The, the key is sometimes. When you're looking at these things and you're in the middle of these things, it feels like there's a you have a long ways to go. But I think you know part of the joy of this experience is also understanding how much progress you can make and the fact that you know these small successes and they're not easy to get. But once you get them and you see people's eyes change from you know being very critical or too hopeful. Cynical to hopeful, I mean, I use that phrase in one of my talks, is probably one of the best satisfactions you can get. And I've seen it. You know, I've seen people who are very cynical that, okay, this can't work, to, okay, I, I'm really excited now. I think, I think this is really something that we can do. So it can happen. It doesn't just have to happen at the unicorns. It can happen at your place. And it's getting those first few successes. And, and then, you know, you really can see some amazing things happen. Amazing. I could not agree more. And, and I think that's, that's, those are some very inspiring words for, for people struggling with this. And again, looking at applying these principles is, is just how quickly and how effective this can be, especially when you, when you take that outside in look. So Carmen, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we'll wrap up and reach out to Carmen on LinkedIn. Thank you, everybody, for listening. A huge thank you to Carmen for joining me on this episode. For more, follow me on my journey on LinkedIn, Twitter, or using the hashtags MicPlus1 or Project Product. You can reach out to Carmen via LinkedIn. I have a new episode every two weeks, so hit subscribe to join us again. You can also search for Project to Product to get the book. And remember that all author proceeds go to supporting women and minorities in technology. Thanks, stay safe, and until next time.